Hello and welcome to the Tales from the Ruther Library podcast coming to you directly from the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the very heart of Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host. And as always, the curling queen, Troy Eller English, is with me. Hi, Troy. How are you doing? I'm great, Dan. How how's are your, you? How's your curling coming? Uh, we do, we won the C event finals. Yeah, see, you kicked yeah. ass. Yeah, that's not bad. Yeah, look at that. Yeah, that's what that's what Troy does in the wintertime. She curls. It's the greatest of all sports. There you go. It's a great thing to watch as well. Just kind of zone out and drink a beer and then relax. That's what you do on the ice as well. So. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, okay, into our podcast. It has been a while since we have talked about the industrial workers of the world. And so on this episode, you're in for a big treat. We talk with Ahmed White, who is the Nicholas Rosenbaum Professor of Law at the University of Colorado. He has a JD from Yale University of Law and has been conducting research and writing about the history of law and labor relations in the early 20th century and how labor rights in a liberal society can function. So it was a great deal for us to be able to interview one of the leading experts on labor repression in the United States and talk about his new book, Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies in the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. Now, during this era from about like World War I to the 1920s, America waged a war here at home that many have forgotten. The Espionage Act was passed in 1917, which great, gave great leeway to do away with certain rights for certain people. Um, the government imprisoned uh, Emma Goldman, the revolutionary, Marie Aki, a medical doctor fighting for women's rights, and let's not forget about Eugene Debs, all imprisoned. But there were thousands of others that were sent to jail before, during, and after this time who stood up for an idea of, quote, build unions based on the direct strength of workers on the job without regard to the government or employer recognition. And that's from the IWW Constitution. White has taken great lengths to tell the stories of the forgotten Wobblies who were oppressed and stripped of their First and Fourth Amendment rights for just being a member of the IWW. His detailed research has uncovered new areas for anyone interested in how, in the early part of the 20th century, the federal, state, and local governments waged a war in the name of patriotism and security against those that questioned the way things were done. Oh, and by the way, I should mention that Under the Iron Heel was just named and given the Book of the Year Award from the International Labor History Association for, quote, this riveting work, one that is critically important in showing that our own profoundly anti-labor system is one shaped not simply by weakness of unions, but rather by the successful collaboration of capital and the state to, as the late historian and lawyer Staunton Lynn put it, outlaw solidarity. So prepare yourself for this interview. Uh, Troy and I both kind of said this is like a sad book to read, (laughs) but Ahmed is here to talk to us about his book, Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. Ahmed, thank you for joining Tales from the Ruther Library. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. I really enjoyed reading your book, Under the Iron Heel. And But before we start getting into your book, why don't we give um, our listeners, I mean, I'm assuming our listeners know who the IWW are, but just in case, why don't you tell uh, set us up of who they are, what they were, well, still are, um, and this is a general background of the IWW. Yes, so the IWW was formed in the summer of 19, 
1905 uh, by a um, coalition of uh, socialists, unionists of various stripes, some anarchists, with the ambition to organize the industrial working class. And ultimately, and this is a very significant um, in determining a course of its history, to bring down the system of wage labor and capitalism. Uh, it was avowedly an industrial union uh, that intended to organize industrial workers on an industrial basis. And uh, that was significant too, uh, not that there weren't other industrial unions then, but the main thrust of American uh, labor at the time was uh, in the direction of organizing along craft lines, not the IWW. It was more or less contemptuous of that kind of organizing and uh, again, aimed at organizing industrial workers on an industrial basis. Uh, this was especially significant because it positioned the union to organize not only industrial workers in general, but uh, unskilled and semi-skilled industrial workers and migratory workers. Uh, within a decade or so of its formation, this proved very significant uh, in the union's history and very significant in uh, the history of repression. Uh, that it encountered, and that's central to um, to my book. All right, so you did mention that the, one of the goals of the Wob their, their nickname was the Wobblies, uh, for anybody who doesn't know that. Um, the IWD was to bring down the capitalist state. Um, so various words come to mind with anybody who talks about the IWW, and that is radicalism, militantism, the Wobblies. Um, and sabotage is used constantly. It's still used by the Wobblies as a form of well, it's a form of, this is the interesting thing. Is it really a word that connotates the destruction or is it something else? I mean, they use the sabotabi, that's the black cat that anybody doesn't know, um, on almost every icon, every label, every type of uh, publication they put out. So, but it was interesting when I was reading your book, you had, a, you know, you, you, you gave me a little education on what sabotage is. So what is that word and how did it evolve to what we connotate it today? Yes, I, I had to educate myself uh, very much on this. I This isn't the first thing I uh, published about the IWW, the first book. Uh, but I, I guess I went into it with, um, with a, a fairly, I would say, casual understanding of sabotage, of its meaning, and of its meaning for the IWW. Uh, not that I'm uh, all that clear about it now, but, but <laughs> I, I'm at least, I think... Uh, uh, better informed about the ambiguities of the word and of its um, of its uh, of the practice um, as it um, as it um, was practiced by the IWW. So the term itself uh, probably is uh, derived from the, the French word for sabot or shoes, wooden shoes. Um, but there, that's where some of the ambiguity begins to show itself. Uh, one. Uh, school of thought has it that uh, the word derives from uh, the practice of throwing these wooden shoes into machinery to destroy the machinery uh, as a form of protest on the part of workers. Another uh, theory has it that the word um, sabotage derives from the fact that French peasants who were often employed or as strike breakers um, were associated with the wearing of these shoes. And in that sense, um, the theory has it the word refers to the idea that these peasants, when they came into work, either as, as strike breakers or, or, or regular employees, were, uh, were not particularly efficient workers, uh, were clumsy on the job, uh, didn't do the job in a, in a very effective way. 
either way, um, there is a, a kind of parallel uh, controversy about uh, whether sabotage, as envisioned by the IWW, meant the destruction of machinery or meant something else. In particular, uh, inefficient work, intentionally inefficient work, slowing down on the job, what uh, what IWW is often called um, striking on the job. Um, it's difficult to say uh, which of these uh, is the, the more accurate way of describing uh, the union's practices in this period. I would say, um, although I'm, I'm not entirely certain about this and I, I would I would I would be quick to hedge uh, in making this point uh, that the union union members did engage in some destructive sabotage mm -hmm. uh, in this period um, but it was not nearly as common nor was it nearly as destructive as the organization's enemies uh, presented it as. Uh, it was also not something that was um, in, in any way central to the union's official policy. Um, but that did matter because by the time um, the, the First World War began, or at least by the time the United States entered the First World War, the union had an unshakable association with sabotage and an unshakable association with destructive sabotage. Uh, it had, to some extent, um, of course, brought this upon itself, not only by these occasional acts of destructive sabotage, but more so by the practice you mentioned, uh, the uh, the frequent invocation of sabotage in the union's literature, in its iconography. Um, and this, this continued from about 1910 or so um, until the eve of America's entry into the First World War, by which time the union's leadership had decided that um, this was giving its adversaries uh, too easy of a way of condemning the organization as one that was seditious and given to wanton destruction, um, and that was culpable not for occasional acts of minor sabotage, but for spectacular and spectacularly dangerous acts of sabotage of a sort I don't think the union ever really engaged in, burning down sawmills, burning down warehouses, um, um, engaging in things that really could get uh, could get people killed. Right. And it seems that this idea of sabotage, destruction, goes hand in hand with the idea that that is what unions do. Um, our first images that we learned in school were the Haymarket, and it's a bomb going off. People are running, people die, police die. Um, images of the Flint sit-down, we see um destruction of the, the factories without understanding the background of that it was the women on the outside protecting the men inside because they lobbed tear gas in those factories so they're trying to clear out but what the image is is violence and go ahead that's right and that's right and that and that leads to an important point about sabotage i think for the union uh, however it envisioned sabotage, however it practiced it, sabotage was an important way of meeting what the IWW recognized, understood was the violence that workers like their members faced on a daily basis in the workplace. Not just the violence of being shot at or beaten up, which happened plenty or thrown in prison, but the violence of working in these incredibly dangerous workplaces where a person, the worker's life was worth um, next to nothing. 
mm. and where people died by the tens of thousands every year. And employers profited from this. So I think in the in the in the view of many wobblies, sabotage, slowing down on the job, typically, maybe occasionally breaking a machine here and there, was a way of subverting, uh, of inverting uh, the relationship that workers usually had with employers, which was one of victimization. Um, mm -hmm. This was a way of saying, we're, we're not going to be victims here. Uh, we're going to find ways to get back at you. And again, whether that meant slowing down on a job, working really slowly, soldiering, whatever one calls it, or occasionally engaging in an act of destruction. I think that's the role it served. And the one other thing I would add is, as we as we know, uh, then and to some extent now, you didn't have to be a wobbly to engage in sabotage in either sense of the term. I mean, workers right. um, uh, find ways to get back at their employers all the time. And, and oftentimes that's, well, frankly, quite justified by the way that they're treated. Right. No, absolutely. Completely agree. And it's it's the it's the way that the Wobblies and IWW, as well as workers, interpret what they have to do on the workplace. And sometimes it's sabotage, sometimes it's slowing down, and sometimes it's being educated. And that's what is interesting to me, the IWW. They, they were constantly educating workers. And I'm so glad you pointed this out in your book as well. It's like there was a uh, a group of 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 men and who wrote constantly and one that i completely forgot about was uh jack london and you mentioned him quite a bit in your book um how did jack london fit into the narrative of the iww especially taken from your title of your book you know like you know like like a lot of people i i i spent much of my youth reading uh like a lot of leftists uh, reading jack london and i didn't start out with the idea that this book would um would would focus on him to the extent it uh, to the extent it ultimately does. Uh, but, you know, the more I worked my way through the material, the more uh, I saw mention of Jack London. Um, and the more I focused, and I think you put the question quite nicely, the more I focused on something I find quite admirable about the IWW, its insistence that workers, industrial workers, were not only potent and capable people who were um, charged with the historical mission of bringing down uh, industrial capitalism and replacing it with a workers' commonwealth. They also thought that, that in accomplishing that mission, it was important for workers to educate themselves, uh, not to be educated uh, so much as to educate themselves. And that's why, of course, IWW halls all over the country were stocked with uh, libraries um, and why the union had so many newspapers, so many pamphlets, uh, why it strove to um, to to inculcate this uh, this ethos among its workers. Uh, well, um, at the time the IWW was formed, one of the most popular writers in the world uh, was Jack London, who uh, was quite famously a socialist and, and emerged, and I think this was key, out of the same world that many IWWs did. Um, uh, he was an impoverished industrial worker in his youth before he became a famous and wealthy, uh, sometimes wealthy writer. <laughs> um, he was never an IWW himself, at least I've never found any evidence of that, uh, but he inspired the IWW at the same time that, it was, that he was in turn inspired by the union. And so there's an interesting interplay there with books like The Iron Heel, 
uh, his novel, his dystopian novel, from which I, 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 I took the title for my book, and short stories like um, The General Strike, where on the one hand, London is deriving from the IWW uh, material for his, uh, for his, his, his literature, his books and short stories. Uh, at the same time, the union um, is, is embracing him and his work uh, as something that spoke to them. Uh, and not just that, in the case of his novel, The Iron Heel itself, something that was for a lot of its members, the men and women who belong to the union, a very effective kind of primer or introduction to revolutionary uh, theory and revolutionary thought. And so, again, there's a very interesting relationship between uh, Jack London and, and the IWW. He never, again, uh, again, he never joined uh, the IWW, but when he died, um, the union uh, eulogized him, uh, mm -hmm. calling him, as I think I mentioned in the book, an, an IWW man, uh, our yeah. Jack, they said. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's quite, uh, to, to my mind, quite a, a close connection in some ways, um, despite the fact that he never belonged to the union. Yeah, he, 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 he romanticized, he explains, and in a narrative that, that are, that, Writers always do. They, they, they take it out and give it in a format that we can understand and sympathize with, um, especially since what they were about to face. Um, but IWW, you know, people think it wasn't a huge union. It, it fell apart, but they did some amazing organizing. Um, especially in the agricultural, we always, as you were saying before, it's mostly industrial and migrant workers and not many people realize how much they organized in the, um, the bread belt, let's just say, you know, um, why and how, and how do they do this? I mean, these are, you know, it's, it's amazing story of how they do organize. And I think some organizers today should learn from this. <laughs> yeah. Yes, there probably is something to learn from the IWW certainly did. Uh, yeah. I, I think it's 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 fair to say that for about the first 10 years of its existence, from 1905 to about 1915, the union uh, floundered around, tried to find its footing. It had some successes in famous strikes like the Bread and Roses strike in 1912 in Lawrence, Massachusetts, and the, the Patterson strike uh, a year later in, in New Jersey. Uh, but, you know, those victories were uh, ephemeral. And uh, by the kind of depression years or recession years of the next of that decade, 1914 or so, uh, the union was in real trouble. And uh, it was saved by this innovation, a, a kind of a kind of paired innovation, um, a, a couple of um, of things that it settled on. Uh, that proved uh, very effective uh, in changing its uh, its course. One was um, something called the job delegate system. Uh, this idea of essentially informalizing the way the union organized and the way it placed its organizers among the workers it was trying to organize. Um, the basic idea here was that um, almost any worker could be an organizer or a delegate for the union, and that these delegates would be placed among the workers they were trying to organize. Um, this was key in, because it played out in concert with the second innovation, which was to turn towards migratory workers. Uh, 
uh, particularly uh, west of the Mississippi River. Um, a good part of that migratory workforce and a very predictable part of that migratory workforce uh, consisted of agriculture workers, but especially in small green agriculture on the Great Plains. To some extent in the Pacific Northwest in California, but especially in the Great Plains where every season, uh, tens of thousands of workers had to be recruited to harvest primarily wheat, but other small grains like oats, um, that sort of thing. Um, the union sent its job delegates into this workforce and within a relatively short period of time, this paid enormous dividends. It was organizing first thousands, then tens of thousands of these workers. Uh, the job delegate system proved its value because it also uh, created a kind of flexibility um, that the, the delegates themselves were delegated a lot of discretion in how they organized and in the terms that they uh, that they demanded or they ultimately reached with, in this instance, uh, farmers. Uh, this was key because it's hard to imagine there would be any other way to do this, uh, to do it well, um, than to have these people inserted among the workers, working alongside the people they organized and operating with this, uh, with this mandate to act flexibly uh, wherever they went. Uh, and then pretty soon this system uh, was uh, brought to bear in other industries, also characterized by a lot of migratory workers, uh, timber, uh, construction, uh, dock workers, and oil workers. And it was from these industries uh, that the union um, um, derived uh, its, um, its, 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 most of its members in the late 19-teens and emerged as a pretty formidable force. So there's still debates about uh, how many members the organization ultimately had. Um, I tend to err on the, on the higher side of that estimate. Uh, others uh, have done, uh, I think, more comprehensive work on this than I have, but I would say at least 100,000 uh, members. But there's a more important point than how many card-carrying members they had at any particular time. Uh, and this is a point made a long time ago uh, by people who studied the union. Uh, and, and that is uh, that the union in that period had not only card-carrying members, the tens of thousands, but it had probably almost certainly several hundred thousand people who had passed through its ranks and who remained um, loyal to the organization and ready to rejoin it, uh, ready to support its strike actions uh, when called upon. Uh, and, and beyond that, it probably had um, thousands, maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of workers in these industries who broadly sympathized with what the union was and what it was trying to accomplish. And this, in turn, this gave the union much of its strength, but it also, in turn, uh, activated a lot of the resistance to it. Right. I, that's exactly what I was thinking. Um, once you get that, that, that wave going, it's hard to stop, especially you don't have to be a member. But you understand, you are educated, you understand, you don't have to be confused by anything, uh, you're standing up. And this is the biggest question, this is the question within your book, and we get in the meat of it. Why was the federal, state, and local governments hell-bent on riddling of the country of the these, these, these radicals? I mean, Wilson said, I think it was about 1917 or 1918, something, um, force, force to the utmost, um, force without limit, I think he said. And... Um, 
This is directly at these activists uh, at the IWW. Other unions were doing the same thing. There was kind of collective bargaining going on. Other Washington, you know, uh, Seattle was not run by the Wobblies, but it was run by a bunch of unions when they took over that city. So why the IWW? Oh, you're you're quite right to ask the question that way. If you if you just look at strike action, the IWW didn't stand out um, uh, from everything else that was happening in the war years. A war, as often the case, a war of that scale. Uh, put unions in a more advantageous position, creating labor shortages, creating increased demands for the 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 things they were producing, and uh, and 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 also causing, as we see in the world today now, uh, a great deal of inflation. Uh, and all of this led to uh, a surge in strike action. Nineteen um, nineteen seventeen, nineteen eighteen, nineteen nineteen were were banner years uh, in terms of the total strikes. And the IWW led only a fraction of those strikes. So uh, the animus towards it can't be explained purely in those terms, although that certainly didn't uh, didn't didn't help the union's reputation in the eyes of, of powerful industrialists in that period. I think it was a couple of other factors. Uh, one of those factors was the union's avowedly revolutionary mission. Um, that was, as we noted a minute ago, wrapped up in a reputation for committing acts of sabotage. Uh, these people were not shy about uh, their aims. They were not gradualist, as many socialists were at the time. They they were not um, they were not inclined to assuage anyone's fears about their potency as an organization. Again, they didn't embrace violence and certainly not mm -hmm. uh, overt bodily violence as a revolutionary strategy. They weren't like many anarchists and and in other parts of the world, at least many communists. Um they weren't like that, but but they embrace sabotage. And again, they make no bones about their aim to bring down industrial capitalism. That's what we're going to do. Not, not in 20 years time, not in 40 years time, but, but as soon as we can. Mm -hmm. And they also exaggerated their strength uh, in their, uh, in their literature and their publications. Um, we're, we're potent, we're strong, and we're coming for you. I think that was one factor, the, re the union's revolutionary uh, bearing and aims. The other factor was, I think, who the Wobblies were. Um, these were, by 1916, 1917, uh, as the Union found its footing and began to really grow, uh, these were um, migratory workers the, from the bottom rungs of the uh, industrial working class who presented a particularly frightening mix of being that, of being poor men, often uh, often dingy and tattered in mm -hmm. ways that offended the sensibilities of a rising middle class, a middle class that in turn was the, the, the demographic basis of the progressive movement, um, the, the base that people like Wilson uh, drew upon. At the same time, these, these, these dingy working class uh, men primarily who lived down, many of them in the railroad jungles and, and, and traveled around um, in, in, again, in tattered clothing, were carrying with them revolutionary tracts, books, uh, journals, uh, papers um, that the union published, uh, putting stickerettes 
uh, as they called them, um, putting stickers around that said IWW with these 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 two to progressive people, uh, frightening portents of revolution that um, presented with uh, with the the uh, with icons that it that that um, that spoke to their belief in sabotage. Uh, or that in other ways exaggerated the strength of working people. Uh, this, I think, was an important factor in um, the animus towards the union, that progressive people, people from the middle classes, uh, were uh, frightened, intimidated, and also um, in some ways politically um, and aesthetically revolted by these people mm -hmm. and, and thought, we're, we're going to get them. They're, they're worse than socialists, they're worse than conventional AFL unionists, um, and, and we're going to get them. And right. they use their influence uh, in, um, in the government at every level, state, local, and federal, uh, to bring that about. It's, I'm glad you brought up that progressives, um, because I've always thought is progressives movement era, as we could say, was just enough to make us feel happy enough that we're eliminating, try to eliminate child labor. We're going to try to like bring health and safety issues, not only to the factories where they burn down, where children get killed, but also the slums. We have to clean them up. It made them feel good, but just enough because mm -hmm. we didn't want to go too far to give those unions any much power. We didn't want to these the lower, lower class of these workers who are organizing to do anything really. And I'm glad you brought that up because I've always felt that that was, that was the progressive era. Yes. Oh, it yes. Nice and shiny, but um, deep down it was not that, that, that good for a bunch of the unions and others. Oh yeah. That, that, that one of the, I think one of the dynamics here was the sense among progressives that there is a better way to deal with this, these problems uh, that doesn't involve challenging the legitimacy of uh, industrial capitalism, but rather reforming it. Uh, mm -hmm. And here you are, you people, uh, you are in some kind of precipitous way. Um, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not as informed as we are. You didn't go to college. You don't have uh, advanced degrees. Uh, you're not trained in the ways of managing an industrial society. Um, step aside and let us do this. And if you won't do it, um, then we're going to put you in prison. And that, to some extent, is what happened here. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um... We'll get to the imprisonment stuff uh, after my next question, but because I want to, because we're talking about these events, these huge events were going on, and uh, most people this don't realize how well, yes, how violent it really got. And the perfect, you know, there's tons of stories. Some are famous, some not in your book, but one that I've always gravitated to and I always thought for. It, and you flushed it out very nicely. This was the Centrella Washington events that happened. It plays out like a scene from a miniseries that I hope someone films someday mm. because it's about grit, determination against all the odds and everything, everything like that. Well, why don't you tell us about this story so um, people can relate? Sure. So. Um... There's you're right. There's lots in in the story that was compelling for me in writing it, and and quite moving, and and in many ways quite heartbreaking. And there mm -hmm. were a lot of violent episodes, and and more than a few wobblies uh, were killed. And I will note this: that uh, where there are a couple of cases where wobblies were implicated in in killing, uh, in the deaths of others, overwhelmingly it was the wobblies who paid the price here. Uh, more of uh of the union members lost their lives way more union members lost their lives than um than um 
their adversaries in these in these clashes and conflicts. Well, the the events in Centralia in 1919 are um, are especially compelling in that regard. And the story, uh, in brief, is uh, one that began with a concerted effort to run the union out of town, uh, out of the town. And this was not at all uncommon. Uh, all over the West, everywhere the Wobblies were prominent, almost everywhere they were prominent, they were subjected to uh, efforts to run them out of town. One way to do that was to arrest them, typically on charges of vagrancy, something like that, maybe criminal syndicalism. Another way to do it was um, by vigilantism, uh, by just, you know, naked violence and uh, to to uh, assemble a group of, of local toughs. Uh, often. Um, well populated by members of um, the commercial classes or the professional classes in town uh, and to go down to the union hall and just run these people out of there. Well, this was done in Centralia several different times. Um, the union hall was sacked. It was, it was uh, ransacked, torn up. The union's furniture in one instance was uh, brought out in the street and, and I think sold uh, sold away after the inside had been uh, broken up uh, and the union's members were beaten. There's one particularly sad and compelling episode that involved uh, a worker who had lost his sight in an industrial accident. Again, we talked about the violence of industrial America at that time. Well, he'd lost his sight and he was kind of making his way. He's a family man. He's making his way, uh, making a living selling um uh, papers and books and such from a newsstand, including IWW materials. And he was apparently an IWW wobbly himself. Well, his uh, his disability was no protection against the brutality of uh, the local uh, anti-IWW crowd. They beat him up. They they tore up his, uh, his newsstand and he dumped him in a ditch out of town, uh, on the outskirts of town, and uh, did this actually a couple of times to him. Uh, when he complained uh, to the local authorities, um, that went nowhere. Uh, or rather, uh, it, 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 it went somewhere, but, but not to his benefit. He mm -hmm. was charged with, in, with criminal syndicalism, convicted, and sent to prison. Um, now, in the meantime, the union managed, um, after ha having its union hall, um, torn up a couple of times, been run out of town, it managed to find a new space in the um, the ground level of a hotel in town. Uh, it was rented to it by a couple of uh, sympathetic folks. Uh, not all progressives were anti-IWW, and uh, I don't particularly know uh, these people's uh, position, but uh, they may well have been among the fairly substantial number of progressives who um, sympathize with the union or at least uh, um, were of the mind that that one had to uh, to respect certain um, certain values and principles, including the idea that people had a right uh, to be radicals. In any event, the union set up uh, a business in um, in the the ground floor of this hotel, and it got word that once again it was in for another attack. That uh, some people in town were planning to attack the Union Hall, and they were going to do it uh, during an Armistice Day parade uh, that was scheduled. Um, I don't think it was scheduled to come past the Union Hall but on uh, initially, but uh, ultimately it was uh, scheduled to come past the Union Hall. Um, and so the Union people figured out that 
this would be a pretext for uh, once again attacking their hall, beating them up and running them out of town. So they consulted with a local uh, attorney, a guy named Elmer Smith, whose brother was a wobbly and who himself was very sympathetic to the union. Um, Elmer Smith explained to them that, um, yes, they had a right to defend themselves under the law. They should probably try to enlist the support of the local police if they could, uh, mm -hmm. that they didn't necessarily want this to go to uh, a situation where they had to um, to um, bear arms in defense of themselves. And they tried that. They went to the local authorities who predictably uh, demurred, did nothing. And so they armed themselves. And on that day, when um, a contingent of legionnaires marched in front of the Union Hall, they broke ranks on command and attacked uh, the building, um, tried to rush in, and were met with gunfire uh, by Union people inside and by some Union folk who were posted on buildings nearby. And they were beaten back, and a couple of them were shot down. They uh, rallied. They went home and fetched guns. They went to some hardware stores and got some firearms and attacked the hole again. And that time, they overcame the Wobblies. Uh, and they captured a bunch of them. Uh, and brought him down to the jail. Uh, one of them, um, who was in the hall, fled. And in trying to capture him, uh, one of the mob, one of the legionnaires, was shot and killed uh, himself. So with, uh, it, with, um, with all of that fresh in their minds that night, um, a contingent of townspeople, including some of those who um, attacked the Union Hall, uh, went down to the jail, uh, removed a fellow uh, named uh, Wesley Everest, and uh, lynched him. Um, now, in, in a common turn of events for labor people, not just Wobblies in this period, um, there was legal action in the wake of this. It involved the prosecution of Wobblies. Uh, a number of them, uh, nine or ten, were initially arrested and uh, charged with the crime. Um, and um, prosecuted for second-degree murder. And interestingly, in that number was this guy, Elmer Smith, uh, the lawyer, who was prosecuted on the theory that he had he somehow aided and abetted uh, the murder mm. uh, of a guy named uh, Warren Grimm, who was the leader of the Legionnaires uh, that day and who was shot and killed. Um, a trial ensued, and uh, the majority of uh, these people, not Elmer Smith, but a majority of the defendants were convicted and sent to prison. And they served um, longer than any IWWs who were put in prison uh, during this period. Um, the last one didn't get out until well into the 1930s. Um, and most of the defendants uh, didn't get out until uh, around 1930 was when they were released. So it was very emblematic of what the IWW faced in this period. If you did nothing, if you were passive in the face of uh, the repression that was uh, directed at you as an IWW, um, then your aims as um, a unionist were uh, defeated. You were run out of town. You were prevented from organizing and all of that. If you fought back, then you were also, um, you also lost in a different way. You were subject to being prosecuted uh, and maybe put in prison. Uh, this was in many ways the story uh, that the organization faced in this period. And uh, the events in Centralia were uh, a tragic 
uh, representation of that or reflection of that. It, that's why I thought this was a perfect story of just demonstrating what was going on across the country for the Wobblies. IWW uh, were faced imprisonment constantly. And it started really when they first organized in 1905 with, um, as you mentioned, uh, various laws were set up against them or used against them. Vagrancy laws. Um they come into towns, try to organize. There are migrant workers right along with them, and you need to be hanging out. You're arrested because you're a vagrant. I, I think uh, you mentioned actually that Jack London was arrested for vagrancy. Yeah, yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, but it goes on and it keeps going on, especially when it affects the First Amendment, uh, freedom of speech. Um, I think in, it was in the, the newspaper, the masses, where um, they were quoting 90 days for quoting the Declaration of Independence, six mm -hmm. months for quoting the Bible. And <laughs> it goes on and on and on. So these soapbox battles were going on. But this is all about our freedom of speech. They had no freedom of speech. So, But this went all the way up to the Supreme Court. Now, when a Supreme Court decision happens on free speech, how did that ripple across? I'm I'm going to jump here from what happened to them in 1919, 1920, 21, up to now. Mm -hmm. I mean, what are the effects from this unknown union to the masses of America as affects them today? So I think it's it's sometimes said, and I think accurately so, that the, the IWW played a crucial role uh, in creating rights of free speech and association in this country. So you have the First Amendment. Um, but over 100 years after the First Amendment was, was, was ratified, was adopted, it was still not the case that the kinds of things we associate with uh, the right of free speech and right of association could be freely exercised um, by people in this country. And the, the IWW um, asserted those kinds of rights quite literally on the street level. And it did this um, first in, and, and quite famously in, uh, a series of so-called free speech fights uh, all over the country where uh, IWWs would typically, um, somewhere in a town square or some such place, um, start in with some kind of public speech. And uh, these were apparently, or often, quite engaging. Uh, one of the techniques to get the speech started was that, uh, you know, some person would get up on a, start shouting, uh, get up on a box and start shouting, I've been robbed, I've been robbed. And a crowd would gather, right? Who by, by the, the forces of wage labor and industrial <laughs> capitalism or something like that. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, but these were also important to the union's organizing efforts because um, it was, especially before the job delegate system was adopted, it was difficult to reach migratory workers. If you didn't go out into the fields and the lumber camps, you had to get them somewhere. And uh, one way to get them was in the streets and the towns where they congregated. But anyway, long story short about um, these, um, these uh, free speech fights, the typical course of them was that the Wobblies were arrested in great numbers. Um, that was kind of the plan, though, because their idea was we're going to bring so many people into this town and so many people are going to assert the right to speak. Uh, so many people are going to be arrested that at some point, you townspeople, you're going to have to relent uh, and grant us the right to speak. And oftentimes the basis for this, the Wobblies demands, was an understanding that other people, other organizations were allowed to speak on the streets. Um, and and we the IWW weren't. That's not fair. That's not right. And we're we're gonna we're gonna change that. 
Um, that didn't lead to a lot of um, constitutional litigation, not just yet, in part because, and I think this is an important point to make, this is where I speak as, as a law professor, <laughs> um, these rights had not really been fully developed in the courts. Uh, the Supreme Court had not really spoken very well or very extensively on the question, how far did the rights of free speech go? And there's an, a very crucial point to make there, too, which is until around this time, um, the courts had not made clear that the First Amendment applied to any government entities in the United States other than the federal government, which meant that. Uh, States and local governments could do whatever they wanted. And if it didn't violate state and local law or the state constitution, then it wasn't constitutionally prohibited. And it probably wasn't prohibited by any law at all. So all to say that when um, legal repression really ramped up uh, during the war years and for a few years after that, and when there were all these prosecutions under the Federal Espionage Act and under the um, state uh, criminal syndicalism laws, that set the stage for a flurry of uh, appeals before um, U.S. courts of appeals and then ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court. And there the story is one of the courts essentially rejecting the idea that the prosecutions of IWWs and to a considerable degree, other radicals during this period offended the First Amendment at all. Uh, and the court did this at the same time that it eventually came around to saying in the same period that the First Amendment did apply to state and local governments. But in a mm -hmm. series of opinions, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected uh, the appeals of people who had been convicted under the Espionage Act, the Federal Espionage Act, and under the criminal syndicalism laws, basically say that, uh, yes, uh, the First Amendment is in, an important and relevant consideration in deciding how far these governments could go in prosecuting people, but its prosecution of you was lawful and legitimate. Why? Because you presented exactly the kinds of threats that the government is empowered to prevent. And this is very significant because mm -hmm. the cases involved, essentially, most of them, prosecutions of people, not for what they had done, but for the organization they belong to and the things that that organization said or that in a relatively small number of cases, the defendant himself had said. So these weren't cases where people were prosecuted for going around trying to burn things down or gathering up weapons or that sort of thing, but rather for being members of the IWW. Almost everyone who was prosecuted um, under the, either the criminal syndicalism laws or in the federal uh, espionage act cases was prosecuted essentially for being a member of the union. That was, as we say in the law, the essential element of guilt. And the Supreme Court and other courts turned around in the vast majority of cases and said, that is uh, quite constitutional. That does not violate um, the First Amendment. Have you ever now or have you ever been a member of type thing that harkens up? 
you know, right? Exactly. And it was actually easy to do because um, for a couple of reasons. One is to do ironically with the pride and the courage that these Wobblies displayed. They were not about to, most of them, deny that they were members of the organization. They bravely stepped up and said, mm -hmm. yes, I am an IWW. I'm proud of that. Uh, in fact, there are quite a few cases uh, in the book uh, where Wobblies uh, volunteer to be prosecuted alongside their fellow workers. They said, you're going to prosecute this guy. I'm a member too. Prosecute me. And that was in addition to the practice, also very common, and happened dozens and dozens and dozens of times, uh, where Wobblies who were in prison um, rejected offers of clemency. Uh, either because they were um, they were offered clemency on the condition that they renounced the union in some way, or because uh, they simply decided, if you're not going to grant clemency to every one of us who's in prison, uh, who are in prison here, um, then I'm not accepting it until you grant it to all of us. Mm -hmm. um, so in, in, in th they made it easy. To, to be persecuted at the same time that this persecution had a devastating effect on them. Right. A, a very marvelous type of attitude. And that's what the Wobbly IWW was. It was kind of not, um, was it, it was a replacement of religion. It was, it was, you're proud to be there. You had your literature around you. You had your songs around you. You had your brothers around you. And that's, uh, it was part of your book. I was admiring these unsung heroes that it, were in here. It was extraordinary. I mean, it's it's you try to be objective, of course, in writing a book like this, but it's hard to be that at all at all times. And uh, uh, it's it's um, it's possible now at, at one who reads the book can look in the the, um, the bibliography and find some of the resources that are available online. It's possible to find, uh, including at, at your archive and others, uh, very interesting photographs. Uh, mm -hmm. of some of these people in prison. But one guy who's central to the book is a guy named Joe Neal or Joe Nile. He went by several different names. I begin the book with him. I end the book with him. Mm -hmm. And I won't give it all away. But this guy uh, endured an extraordinary. Um, he paid an extraordinary price for being a member of the union, not a very prominent member of the union. But I can remember after years of being familiar with him and his story, the time when an, an archive, I think the state archives in um, in 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 Kansas, I um, I finally um, for the first time saw his picture, and it was a very moving moment um, because it 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 gave a human face quite literally yeah. to someone whose story I thought I knew pretty well and whose story was uh, was compelling and tragic, uh, was redolent with with courage. Uh, but also with suffering. And and these people, they suffered mightily uh, for what was done to them. Um, Absolutely. So you mentioned archives. This is our favorite part of this, this podcast. Um, you've discovered archives. You've undiscovered stories uh, all across the country. Can you name a few particularly great, you know, obviously the Ruther, but um, uh, collections where you saw found IBW information across the country in case people want to follow up. And you mentioned things online, too, if you uh, could share that as well. Yeah, sure. So the, the Ruther's key, uh, and, and we all know that you have a vast collection of IWW materials. Um, some of it um, I, I used uh, more to back up things or to augment 
stories that had already been well told in the secondary, what's now the secondary literature. Uh, some of it, um, I don't think had much use had been made of, um, but it, you know, it, it ran the gamut from um, from uh, materials on the union's finances, which are important uh, to the story I tell. Part of the story here is what effect repression had on the organization. And mm. one point I make somewhat contingently, because as those of us who study IWW know that uh, one of the one of the effects of repression was uh, the destruction of many of the union's records, uh, at, at least in especially in the period uh, in which um, in, in which uh, uh, this story played out. Uh, nonetheless, uh, you've got a lot there on the union's finances, especially at the national level. Uh, one thing I found especially useful uh, from your collection uh, were the collections on from specific wobblies. Uh, one that comes to mind of several is that of Nick or Nicholas Steelink, uh, who went to prison uh, on criminal syndicalism charges and who left a um, vast collection of letters um, to his wife that I think do something that I thought was quite important to me in telling this story, and that is to get at the human side of it and the human side of repression, what, what it really means uh, to be thrown in prison. Uh, for belonging to a union. I thought those were extraordinarily useful to me, in addition to many other um, parts of your collection, including, for instance, the transcripts of uh, the big um, uh, federal prosecution, the biggest uh, single prosecution of the IWW, the Chicago Espionage Act case uh, in the summer of 1918. That, that I think, is also crucial. Uh, there are other archives that were very useful to me. Um, University of Washington has um, a, a very, very considerable collection. Uh, from there, I uh, I think the the branch records, which include a lot of um, materials on uh, legal defense work, mm -hmm. um, the attempts to uh, to provide legal representation for and relief in prison to uh, wobblies who had been convicted. That's one thing that stands out to me from. Uh, from their collections, they had an extraordinary amount on that, and other case files uh, in local cases, there in regional cases uh, from out there. And I guess the other kind of collection, uh, uh, kind of material that uh, I thought was really useful, given what I was trying to do, uh, is something I got from a number of archives, and that's prison records. Um, so some that stand out. Uh, some of the federal stuff is available. Um, so, but others that stand out from Idaho, uh, they have very extensive, um, the Idaho State Archives uh, have very extensive uh, files on each of the inmates. There were, I think, 30 IWWs who were put in prison there on criminal syndicalism charges. Only a handful were locked up in Kansas, but they also have uh, good collections. Uh, California has, uh, since I started on this way back when, uh, digitized a, a lot of their criminal. Their, I'm sorry, their prison records, and so has the state of Washington. And those two states together account for the majority of the vast majority of IWWs who were put in prison for uh, criminal syndicalism, uh, violating the criminal syndicalism laws. And, and those are really useful. They, you not only can, you know, see pictures of these people, um, and sometimes in striking and affecting ways, but um, the prison systems collected all kinds of personal information about these mm -hmm. uh, people, letters that they sent or were sent to them, um, 
physiological information, which I think is interesting, that documents the injuries they often sustain, who they were, um, their nationality, their ethnicity, their religious affiliation, um, those sorts of things. And it's, it's, I think, quite useful in getting a sense of who these people were, especially if you're talking about folks who weren't in some sense, famous, like uh, Ralph Chaplin or Big Bill Hayward or whoever, where biographers have done a really good job uh, with some of those people, at least, uh, in bringing to light who they were. But with the average wobbly, prison records are quite useful in sorting that out. Excellent. I mean, thank you so much for joining us on Tales of the Ruther. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation. Learned a lot again from your book. Um, Thanks so much. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed it very much myself. I was happy to be here. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller-English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Spoiler alert, they all go to jail. <laughs> they all get released. Some get released. <laughs> Some live. Most die. But great beach reading. <laughs> is, it is for the spring break in all of you while you're down at Daytona Beach, kids. It's a wonderful piece of literature to all read. And you can regale your friends with like, oh my god, did you re- did you hear about this? I can't believe my government did this and that and this. And you will know more about how that part of our history affects us still today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one's gonna one of them's gonna be very depressing. <laughs> So depressing. (laughs) Welcome to the Ruther Library Podcast. Get out your hanky. (laughs) Get out your hanky, you'll be crying.